All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we thank you that you have taught us what you would have us believe and do. Help us by your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ to hold fast your word in our hearts that you have cleansed that thereby we may be made strong in faith and perfect in holiness and that we may also be comforted in life and also in death. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. So the topic of today is on holy baptism. We're on the... This is our final uh, three weeks of the course of the adult instruction class. So we are going to uh, cover the uh, the sacrament of holy baptism. And so I'll be uh, showing a couple of verses to you guys here throughout. If you have your Bibles, that'll make it a, a little bit easier uh, to follow along. I'm going to make some references too to some verses that we probably won't cover here in this class together just for the sake of time, <clears throat> since we only have an hour and 15 minutes. So uh, f- first of all, I want to go back to that one analogy I brought up uh, two weeks ago on the means of grace. And that the idea here was that uh, the teaching was that God doesn't convert people directly by zapping faith into their heart. But he could. But what God has ordinarily done and what he's chosen to do is that he's chosen to use means to accomplish that, to put faith in our hearts. Um, He uses the means of his word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And there was an an analogy I used about two weeks ago. I was telling you about, you know, somebody goes out to the wilderness, they build a house, and then there's a stream or a river uh, 50 meters away. And there's clean water there. And what they do is they build these pipes uh, to transport the water and the water flows from those pipes into the faucet. And then I gave you the analogy of somebody coming over and looking at that faucet and saying, well, look, if you just turn the handle here, uh, the water comes out. So you don't need the pipes. You don't need any of this stuff. Uh, What's the point of the pipes if the water just comes out here? And then you say to them, well, that's what the pipes do. That's how the water from the river got into the sink is the pipes are carrying it there. They're transporting it. Uh, so, so the point of that analogy was that the, the reason this faucet has clean water is because the pipes are delivering that river water into your, your very home. <clears throat> it was sim- it's the same water. It's just come to you. This is the same way we view the means of grace. Uh, that, that was an analogy for it. All Christians confess that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the source of our forgiveness. It's, it's where it comes from. It's what accomplished it. Who Jesus is and what he has done is our forgiveness. That is where it's found. The question is, now we're not just removed by 50 meters. We're removed by thousands of miles And on top of that, thousands of years. So how do we get what happened there at the cross here to me today in Winter Garden or Okoe or wherever uh, in 2022? How how do we get that to here? Well, then what God has used is he uses uh, what we call the means of grace. It's just a label we give to it. The question is, how does God deliver this to us? So that in this analogy, Jesus is the, the river water, the pipes are the means and the faucet are the means and then you're the person in the house and the way you get that water into your home 
is through that whole mechanism. The, the way you get Jesus into your heart, the way you get Jesus into your life, his forgiveness, his salvation is through those means, through that channel. Uh, so in the Lutheran church, we define and say that we have um, th these means of grace. We call it the, the word of God, uh, the, the sacrament of holy baptism, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You can make an argument, and in fact, the Lutheran confessions do talk about absolution being a, a third sacrament or another sacrament, uh, even ordination at times. But for the that's for another class and another discussion. But for today, I want to talk about uh, simply holy baptism being the means by which God delivers what Jesus did to you. So, <clears throat> so holy baptism, uh, my thesis here for this class is this. Baptism is a means of grace and baptism delivers to you the forgiveness of sins and the very salvation that Jesus won for you on the cross. Now, I know that's an extraordinary claim, <clears throat> so I need to back it up. I need to prove it to you and I need to give you proof of this. And then you have to say, well, what's the definition of proof? Uh, proof isn't me telling you my opinion or giving you some elaborate explanation or reasoning behind this. Proof isn't if I quote a thousand other theologians and men who have the same opinion as me. That's not proof. Proof is only if I can show it to you in the scriptures. If, if I can tell you to open your Bible and you read it for yourself and you see it there. So if the proof comes from scripture, then you'd expect that for the Bible to say that baptism does things for us, that it does things like giving forgiveness or that, it, that the Bible says that uh, baptism gives salvation or that baptism washes away sins or things like this. So so that's the proof you're looking for. So you say, well, I need to be convinced that baptism saves me. This is what he's saying. Well, you got to show it to me from scripture. And what I'm expecting to see from scripture are, is something along those lines that baptism saves or baptism forgives or ba that it delivers that to me. So my task today is to prove to you that this is indeed what the Bible plainly and clearly says. I, I want to begin first by talking about where baptism comes from. <clears throat> the question is, is baptism something that the church and Christians created and, and they instituted that we came up with? Or is baptism something Jesus instituted and came up with? Well, let's look at uh, Matthew 28. Matthew 28, going down to the uh, final verses of of the book of Matthew, starting at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. He told them he would meet them there, and he appeared there. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, this is after his resurrection, after his, his death and resurrection. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not some authority or most authority, all of it, all of it. In fact, the ascension of Christ is the most comforting and most beautiful thing in the world. 
Um, and I've preached on this uh, a number of times, but th- these two words should give you such comfort that all the authority has been given to Jesus, uh, the one who bled and died for you. Verse 19 then says, he tells to the 11 disciples, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, We've already talked about the grammar here when Jesus says in the name of singular, and then he goes on to say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What it should say is in the names, plural, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here it's showing the Trinitarian, uh, uh, who, who God is, who, who the Trinity is, that he has, he's one person, one name, but it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but w- what I want you to see is that uh, this, this text, Jesus had directed them. And then again, and Jesus came and said to them. And what does he talk about? He talks about his authority, um, And then he talks about going and making disciples. Um, And then he also says baptizing. And then finally teaching. And then this beautiful comfort at the end. I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so what's going on here? Uh, First of all, we see very clearly that who is the, the one speaking is Jesus. In other words, baptism doesn't come from the pastor. It doesn't come from Christians or the church or the synod or the Pope. Baptism was instituted by Jesus himself, the same one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. He has the authority to tell the church to do whatever he says. The the second thing is that, what does he say to do? He says, well, make disciples. So make disciples disciples. This is the the command for them. Make these disciples of all nations. And we'll talk about those, what nations means in in a moment. Um, The word disciple here means simply learner. That's what disciple means in the scriptures or a follower. In other words, disciples are Christians. So make Christians, make disciples. The reason I'm emphasizing that is because I don't want you to fall for the trick of people who say that, look, some people are just Christians, but others are disciples. <laughs> it's, it's this idea that some Christians just come to church and they listen on Sunday and they repent of their sins. But then there's this other category of Christians, but they're the disciples. You've got to disciple people and they're really active and they're on fire for Jesus and things like this. This divides people. Christians up into two false groups and it creates this false hierarchy and dichotomy. The truth is, is that a disciple is a Christian and a Christian is a disciple. So, uh, but Jesus says, make disciples, that is make Christians of all nations. Well, then the question is, well, okay, well, how do I do that? Well, he says exactly how to do it. This is how you do it. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Um, <clears throat> so baptizing, the, the word baptize in Greek simply means to wash with water, to apply water to. Um, the amount of water doesn't matter. This can be done by immersion or pouring or sprinkling and so on. Uh, but the point is you can't have baptism without water. 
There's no such thing as a dry baptism. I, I think there was a book by Chuck Swindoll. Um, it's called, ah, I think, Amazing Grace or Grace That's Amazing. I don't know, something like that. Um, and in the book, he says that there's a, such a thing as a dry baptism, <laughs> baptism without water. But the very definition of the word baptism requires water. That's what baptism means. It means to wash with water. It's the, the cleaning agent. So baptism is always with water, and it's always done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the second thing is that he's, he says baptizing and then teaching. And Jesus says the apostles must teach the disciples. That is, the pastors are to teach Christians. And the phrase here is to observe all that I've commanded you. I used to think that this meant something like, well, teach them to obey or keep all of the commandments. Uh, that's not really what he's saying. That includes that, sure. But he's saying teach them to keep, uh, uh, to, to, to keep all the things that I commanded you to teach them. In, in other words, tell them everything I told you. <laughs> all of the stuff that I told you about, tell them that. It, he's not just refining it to the Ten Commandments. He's talking about everything that he's taught. That all the scriptures point to him about the forgiveness of sins, about marriage, about divorce, about uh, um, everything. He says, all of those things now teach to the, to the people. Um, I, I also want to point out one other thing here. He, he has these two um, participles, baptizing and teaching. These two go hand in hand, which means we can't separate the two. And... Uh, even though they shouldn't ever be separated, Jesus doesn't prescribe the exact order in which it's to be done. For example, he doesn't say baptizing, then teaching. Or he doesn't say teaching, then baptizing. He simply gives them together and says, baptizing and teaching. They're, they're joined together. So this means, so we get from this, that since he didn't prescribe an order, then we're free to observe the order. So this means that could someone be baptized first and then taught? Well, absolutely. That's the order of the text. But could someone also be taught first and then baptized? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we have examples of that. Uh, Acts chapter 2, Peter teaching on baptism before baptism happens to the adults. Uh, Philip and the eunuch. He teaches him about Isaiah, and then he baptizes him. Uh, we also have examples of the opposite, and I'll, I'll show you that as well. So the point is the order here is not crucial. It's not so, so necessary. It's just that they go together. It's wrong to baptize and not teach. It's wrong to teach and then not lead to baptism. Okay, so what does it mean to baptize? Baptize in Greek uh, simply means to wash with water, to apply water. Matthew 3, 11, uh, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water. Uh, Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, you, you can't have, uh, the, the very word includes water. It is the definition of using water in a certain way. Now, I'm, I'm saying this because there's a controversy. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be silly for Christians to argue about the amount of water that is being used in baptism or the way that the water is applied. Um, and yet, 
that's what many have done. <laughs> we actually have a controversy on that in the churches, in Christian churches. Uh, there's a point, there's a discrepancy here. Uh, the point is that uh, it is water and God's word, but there are some Christians who insist that the amount of water and the way that it is applied is crucial for a valid baptism. That if you don't do it with this certain amount and with this in, in this mode, then it's invalid. Uh, the, the ones who teach this, the, the most prominent ones who teach this are the Baptists and the non-denominational Christians. And they insist that baptism by immersion, officially, this is what they teach, that baptism by immersion is the only valid baptism. That's one view. The other view is that the amount of water and the mode of application of that water doesn't make baptism what it is. Rather, it is the word of God that makes baptism what it is. With the water, whatever amount and whichever mode it's applied. So to show you that, I want to give you a few texts. Uh, Luke eleven thirty eight. This is Jesus himself talking. And I want to show you that the word baptism does not only mean immerse. Does baptism mean immerse? It includes that. Yeah, absolutely. Does it only mean immerse? No, it doesn't only mean that. Uh, Luke eleven thirty eight 38 uh, says this. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him, Jesus, to dine with him in his house. So he went and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished, is what the text says, astonished to see that he did not first wash. Uh, and the, the word there is baptizo. In the Greek, it's the same word that he did not first wash before dinner. This is referring to washing of his hands, not his entire body. If if baptized means immerse, then this means that the Pharisees, their rule was to immerse themselves completely to take a bath before every each and every meal. Uh, but here, this the word baptizo is meaning just washing your hands. So it's just a part of the body. Um, that's, that's one uh, text that shows that. Mark 7, chapter 7, verse 4 says this. And when they, came, uh, when they came from the marketplace, or sorry, Jesus says, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And it's the same word, baptizo, again. And there are many other traditions that they observe, Jesus says, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. <clears throat> Now, the, the way to wash these things in those days was by pouring water on top of it. Uh, they had no running water. Water was very scarce and you couldn't just turn on a faucet to get it. So it wouldn't make any sense to have a, a, a pot of water and then immerse things in there. What you've done is you've dirtied that water. Rather, they would take the dirty dish and then pour the clean water on top of it, clean it off and go on and uh, from that point. So there's, uh, and, and this is what they would do with the cups and the pots and the vessels and things like this, washing their hands. It was partially, it was poured on it. Hebrews 9, 10. Um, uh, the, the author of Hebrews writes, deal only with food and drink. That is, there are people who deal only with food and drink and various washings. The word baptism or baptizo is there again. Uh, Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. 
In other words, what this is referring to is the Old Testament washings that the Pharisees were still uh, referring to and, and observing. There are various rituals to washing. The word baptism is used there as well in Hebrews 9, verse 10. There are many ways to wash something. And in fact, if you read Numbers 19, we won't have time to read this here, but you should write this down. Numbers 19, verses 17 through 20. This talks about ritual washing. And this is what Hebrews 9, 10 is referring to. Uh, This is a ritual washing that includes all forms and modes of applying water. And in that very text from Numbers, it talks about dipping, it talks about sprinkling, and it talks about bathing. <laughs> All three in the same text, right? And this is what Hebrews is talking about and referring to, to all of that. These are the various kinds of things. Okay, this is just, I, I could show you more. I don't want to take too much time on this, but these are just some examples that the word baptism or baptizo in the New Testament does not strictly and only mean immersion in every single instance. Certainly it includes it but it's not exclusive to that. I want to give you a few other arguments that are not in the Bible. Um, well, the, yeah, some are in the Bible. Let me, let me tell you that. And then I'll give you some arguments that aren't in the Bible. But in the Old Testament, I already quoted to you the Numbers 19 text. There's Exodus chapter 40 that talks about this ritual washing. And this same word is translated into Greek as baptizo. Um, Aaron, uh, uh, it's, it's about washing Aaron and his sons with water at the tent of meeting. They didn't, it was just pouring water upon them. Uh, Numbers 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 5 through 7, talks about sprinkling water on the Levites. The same thing is happening there. Leviticus 17, 15 talks about immersing clothing in water and bath. Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, this is beautiful. God himself says, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uh, uh, uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. (laughs) Uh, There in Ezekiel 36. Okay, so there's various ways to wash uh, throughout the scriptures and that's what it's referring to. Now, just an example uh, from history, the early church There was never a controversy in the early church on the amount of water or the way in which the water was applied for baptism. There's evidence in the early church for immersion baptisms. There's also evidence in the early church on sprinkling and pouring for baptism. So if you want to look at church history, it's all throughout church history. In fact, it didn't become a problem. Nobody started to argue about the amount or the mode of water until the 1500s. Um, It was in the 1500s for the first time in church, Christian church history that this made its its way out, uh, that there were some who said immersion baptism is the only acceptable and valid form of baptism. Um, So this idea that baptism by immersion is the only way is only about 500 years old in church history. When in fact, Uh, For 2,000 years, the church has been observing it in in other ways. But by the way, um, uh, it's estimated that about 75% of Christians who are baptized were were baptized in another way besides immersion. 
it's only about 25% are baptized by immersion. Well, then that's saying that 75% have not received a valid baptism. Again, not an argument. I'm just kind of pointing this out. I think it's interesting that the non-denominational and Baptist churches would say, well, 75% of Christianity does not have a valid baptism. Uh, the other thing, now this is a, another proof, and it's a, an argument from silence, but it, it's important that the Bible never clearly mandates nor prescribes immersion baptism. It never says you must do it this way. There's no controversy, controversy in Acts or the early church about this, that they fought about this and said, well, we really got to figure this out. How much water is, is enough or what temperature or uh, what mode? It, that wasn't a thing. Um, now, the reason I'm telling you this is because, the, like I said, we're here in the South, we're in Florida, where <laughs> there's a lot of non-denominational churches, there's a lot of Baptist churches, a lot of the um, televangelists will talk this way too. Um, and let, let me just put it to you this way. Do Lutherans require Baptists or non-denominational Christians who were baptized by immersion to be rebaptized with sprinkling or pouring? And the answer is no, we don't. Okay, on the other side, do Baptist or non-denominational Christians require Lutherans and others baptized by pouring and sprinkling and uh, these ways to be rebaptized by immersion? Yes, they do. Um, our definition of baptism, according to the scriptures, is inclusive of immersion, but the Baptist and non-denominational definition is exclusive of all other forms of baptism and says it is only this way. And there's a reason for that because they chiefly view it. In fact, I think they only view it as, a, um, as an act of obedience, as a thing that is to be done and rendered to God. So we'll talk about that. That's why it is so crucial to their understanding of baptism. You want to be more obedient than less obedient. And so the way to be the most obedient is to practice baptism the exact way that Jesus was baptized. Uh, it's even questionable whether Jesus was immersed or not. There's debate on that. But regardless, um, there's plenty of other things in the scriptures that show this. Okay. I think the best way to show you that the amount of water doesn't matter and also who ought to be baptized um, according to the scriptures, the best way to show those things is by first considering what baptism does. So talking about the benefits of baptism and then we'll talk about the, the other things later. Regarding baptism, the, the question is, well, what's the purpose? Okay, Jesus gave this. Well, what's the purpose of baptism? What does it accomplish? There's two main views. The first is a symbolic view. And it's the view that baptism is simply about showing your own obedience to God. It's an, this is the phrase they would use, an outward sign of an inward reality. Uh, so you say, well, I'm making public what I already hold privately to be true in my heart. Um, it tells the church and the world, it's a declaration about what you think about God. And what it says is that you think he is worthy to be obeyed. 
That's, that's the point. It is an act of obedience. You tell the world, I love God, and I think he's worth obeying. He means the world to me. That's the symbolic view. The other view is what we would call the sacramental view or the biblical view. Uh, and the idea is this, is that baptism isn't something that you give to God. It is something that God gives to you. Baptism isn't a symbol or sign of reality. It is reality. It makes something happen. It changes something. Baptism is not making public what you think of God. Baptism is making public what God thinks of you. Uh, What God holds privately, what he thinks about you, he is declaring it in baptism. So baptism is God telling to the church and to the world what God thinks about you. And what does he think about you? He says he thinks that you're worth dying for and forgiving and redeeming, that God does not give up on you. He thinks you are worth saving. He's, you're, you're worth all of the time and the effort and the suffering needed to forgive your sins. Those are two different directions. The symbolic view of obedience is what I do to God, but the sacramental view is what God does for me, what God does for us. Now, my job here is to show you that. John 3, 5. Let's look at these texts together. Um, <clears throat> So John chapter three, verse five says, this is the the famous dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus. Um, so so, So going back to verse three, Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, that is better translated, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? So he's still thinking of here and now. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What's going on here? Uh, First of all, Jesus doesn't say water, then the spirit, as if they're two separate things or in chronological order. But he puts a conjunction between them and he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit together, um, that they are, they are joined in this way. Uh, they're not two different baptisms. Uh, Ephesians chapter uh, four tells us that there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Um, so he says water and the spirit. This means they're joined together. And then he says, unless you have this, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Which means what? That if you have this, then you can enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> so, so here very clearly, Jesus is teaching what baptism does. Uh, that the water and the spirit is giving you the kingdom of God. Okay. Um, the other text I want to show you is Galatians 3 verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith, it says. Paul writes this. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus 
have put on Christ. Uh, what is going on here? <clears throat> this is um, what, what's going on here is that um, Christ is being portrayed as a garment or a robe, uh, so, something you can put on, like a coat or something like this. And specifically, it's talking about the, the, the righteousness of Christ or who Christ is. Or, or Christ is holy. Christ is righteous. Christ is innocent and blameless. Uh, well, Christ is perfect. Well, you have put on that everything he is, his righteousness, his blessedness, his innocence, his perfection. Uh, and when does Paul say that you put that on? He says, as many of you as were baptized, that this very putting on of Christ is done in baptism itself. Um, another text, Acts 2, 38. So this is uh, Pentecost, Peter's sermon uh, to the Jews who crucified him. Verse 38 says, well, they, they ask, brothers, what shall we do? And not saying that they think there's something they can do. They're, they're in despair. They're saying, well, what do we do now? We've ruined it. And then Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Uh, there's so much to point out here. I'm just going to stop. Uh, we'll refer to this text again in a little bit. But what I want to say here is that Peter doesn't say, um, he doesn't say, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for, uh, or, um, uh, in response to the forgiveness of your sins or as a symbol of your acceptance of the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, the word there in Greek is ice, which means for, or that is for the very purpose of, to have the forgiveness of sins, that you're baptized into the forgiveness of sins is, is what's going on there. So that it's, that your baptism is not a response to forgiveness, but is the very means by which you are attaining that forgiveness and receiving it. Okay, uh, that's Acts 2.38. Look at 1 Peter 3.21. This can't be clearer. Let me uh, take out those markings. So <clears throat> in the context here, Peter is talking about um, the flood Christ uh, descending into hell, uh, the flood, and those sort of things. Verse 21 makes a reference back to the flood and says, baptism, which corresponds to this. Well, then that, what's the antecedent? You've got to figure that out. Well, that's the flood. Well, what did the flood do? Who did it wipe away? Did it wipe away Noah and his family? No, it drowned, away, uh, drowned out and, and washed away all of the unbelievers, all of those who hated God, all of the those who sinned and uh, rejected God and his forgiveness. Baptism, which corresponds to this, uh, now what does it do? It saves you. Hold on, let me underline that. Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. So it's not just a cleaning of your flesh, not just taking away germs from your skin, but 
as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What what does that mean? What what's a bad conscience? Well, you have a bad conscience when you feel guilty. Well, when do you feel guilty? When you do wrong. That is when you sin. Well, if baptism uh, doesn't remove dirt from the body, it's not a removal of dirt from the body, but it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Well, what is that doing? It is taking away guilt and sin. That is making me have a good conscience. So if baptism saves you, how does it do this? By taking away the thing that gives you a bad conscience, the thing uh, which is sin. And how does it do it? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Uh, that text, I mean, if, like I said at the beginning, my job is to prove to you that this is what the Bible says, that the Bible teaches that baptism saves you. If that's what you're looking for, then you would expect for the Bible to say, baptism saves you. And 1 Peter 3.21 says, baptism saves you, <laughs> right? Um, I want to show you another text, Hebrews 9, just along these lines here. Um, this is talking about all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the preparations and things like this. Um, verse 8 says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing just symbolic for the present age. But that's, we could talk about that another time. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what this is saying is that you can offer gifts and sacrifices and all these sort of things, but what can't they do? Well, they cannot perfect the conscience of the Christian. They cannot clean the conscience of the Christian. Well, what is baptism doing? It is cleaning the conscience. Uh, it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So, well, what's the only thing that can do that? Well, later on it says it is Christ who appears as the high priest and gives his own blood. Well, if that's, if that's um, the only thing that can clean our conscience is the blood of Christ. And if First uh, Peter 3 says that baptism cleans our conscience, well, then what is baptism delivering to us? The very blood of Christ, delivering to us Christ himself. Um, <clears throat> the, the very forgiveness of sins. Titus 3, 5. This is another text we'll look at. Um, okay. Starting at verse 4, Titus says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, that is, any act of obedience or anything, but according to His own mercy, by what? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What, what does that sound like? <laughs> he saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us 
richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Well, that sounds a lot like, those are a lot of water words. Uh, washing, um, uh, yeah, uh, washing, regeneration, uh, poured out, things like this. Um, this also goes back to the way Jesus talks in John chapter 3. That he, he says, unless you're born again of water and the Spirit. Here you see the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> By the way, the word regeneration here means literally being born again. Re again and generos is, uh, or genesis. It's the, the beginning again of you. Um, okay, I, I want to show you one or actually a few more texts. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. So, um, I'll just read the text. It just says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Um, being baptized is the washing away of your sins. Again, uh, let's look at Ephesians 5.26. Here, baptism is referenced in, in passing. I mean, that's not even the topic of Ephesians 5 here, but it's just kind of a, a, a footnote almost. Here, Paul is exhorting, uh, is talking about the roles of men and women. Wives, sub submit to your husbands as to the Lord in all things. Uh, husbands, now here it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that is, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. <laughs> what, what does that mean? What, what is that referring to? What could it possibly refer to if not baptism? <laughs> He's talking about how did he clean her? How did he sanctify her and make her holy? Well, the washing of water with the word. Uh, now let's look at, look now, turn to uh, the gospel, to the words of Christ, Mark 16, 16. Jesus in his ascension says to his apostles now, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Whoever believes and is baptized. So faith and baptism goes together. What does it result in? Salvation. Um, okay, finally, Romans 6, 4. Let me read the, the context here. What shall we say then, Paul writes, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So, so if God gives me uh, grace when I sin, well then do I just sin all the more? No, absolutely not. By no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He says, this is past tense. Well, when did I die to sin? How did that happen? Uh, I, I don't remember dying. Verse 3 says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So what happened to me? There, there, when I was baptized, I died to sin. Something actually changed in me. We were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. And, and then it goes on, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. How are we united with him in his death? In baptism. And what's the benefit of that baptism? Baptism That we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. What is that besides salvation? That's the point of the Christian life, is to be resurrected like Jesus was from the dead. Uh, just read Romans 6. It's beautiful. I mean, there, there's, you can't read that and then conclude that baptism does nothing. <laughs> That's just a symbol. There's no way you could do that or, or read uh, any of these texts. Okay. Um, what's happening here in Romans 6 is Paul is saying that there's this newness of life coming up in us. Well, what, what is that? It's the spiritual life. In baptism, we're actually buried with Christ spiritually into his death. And it actually causes us to live a new life, to resurrect like he does. Uh, you can refer back to Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about we were dead in our trespasses and now we're made alive together in Christ. So, so the bottom line here is that in baptism, we learn that God gives us everything that Christ achieved and earned for us. He gives us forgiveness of sins. He gives us uh, spiritual life. He gives us salvation. So I hope that I've, I've shown you just plainly what the Bible says about that. Um, I'm going to save this to the end to see if we still have time at the very end about how can water do such great things. Um, I, what I really want to get to is who is to be baptized. I, I really want to address that. And then if you have questions about these things later, let me know. Um, that uh, What I want to point out later is that this isn't the first time God does miraculous things through water. It's not the first time he saves people through water. Anyway, okay, uh, who is to be baptized then? I, I really wanted to focus on what baptism is so that we could talk about then who should have it, who should receive it. Well, Matthew 28, 19, again, this is where Jesus institutes baptism. He says, make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them. Consider the words all nations. What is an... What does all nations mean? It means every, all people, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their language that they speak, regardless of their sex, regardless of their age, even. That all nations includes people with light skin and dark skin and everyone in between, people who speak one language, people who speak many languages or any language, people who are male or female, People who are old and people who are infants. That's what makes up a nation. Uh, people tend to disagree or people tend, tend to agree with every part I said, except for the part about age. And they think that everyone's included except for infants, that they're excluded. But excluding infants from the word nation is unnatural and it's not the ordinary use of the word. Um, a nation is not everybody who's voting age. It's everybody, every human in that area and place under that nationality, uh, if, if you might call it that. For, for, for example, um, say you turn on the TV and you hear this breaking news and it says uh, a massive tsunami wiped out the entire nation of Japan. And you see it and you say, ah, oh, man, that's so bad. You know, what? I'm so relieved that the babies and infants survived. 
right? <laughs> it's, it's, you're making an exception where there is no exception. If somebody says the, the, the entire nation, well, who does that include? Well, everybody, <laughs> even the babies, right? Um, so we don't use that word nation or we, we don't refer to all people like this and then always exclude the infants. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm pushing on that for, for the reason, because there are Christians who will exclude infants from baptism. They will say, you can baptize anybody except for babies. Uh, and the common argument is this. The Bible never says explicitly to baptize babies. I'll, I'll respond to that in a second. But uh, one response that you can give is this. The Bible never says not to baptize infants. It never forbids us from baptizing babies. Even more, <clears throat> the Bible doesn't say to baptize women. It doesn't explicitly say that. It doesn't explicitly say baptize moms or teenagers or elderly people. And yet every Christian church that I'm aware of baptizes women and moms and teenagers and elderly, elderly people. Uh, the, the question is not why... Um, what they would be baptized, but why would you exclude a teenager from this group? Or why would you exclude moms from this group or elderly people? Why would you exclude infants? If you are going to exclude a certain group and demographic of people, you need to have a very, very good reason, a strong biblical reason to show and prove that some portion of the population uh, should not receive the blessing that Jesus wants to give in baptism. And we need a very clear text that forbids us from doing that. Or else you're doing something not good, <laughs> something sinful even. Uh, a lot of churches withhold baptism from babies. Not a lot. Uh, well, a good amount, yes. Uh, they will withhold baptism from babies. I think there are more Christians and churches that do uh, baptize babies than not. Uh, but a lot of Christians will ask me, look, why do you baptize babies? And the, the question is, I respond by saying, look, it's not why I baptize babies, but why don't you baptize them? Why, why do you exclude them? And what is your biblical reason for excluding them? How do you include everybody, every demographic, every age, every sex, every uh, nation, except for babies? Why do you do that? I, I want to hear from you. Now, I already told you the text, Matthew 28, 19. I want to show you some other texts that show clearly that we are to baptize babies. Um, Acts chapter 2 is, is again, whoops. Acts chapter 2, why doesn't this work? Hmm. Okay. Well, I'll just read it to you. Um, Acts chapter 2 says, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. You're not earning it. If baptism is an act of obedience, then it would be a wage of the Holy Spirit. But it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because the promise is for you and for your what? Teenagers? No. For your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls himself. 
Peter preaches this 10 days after Matthew 28, verse 19. When Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, 10 days later, Peter preaches this. If you had doubts that all nations includes children, well, then Peter clears this up very, very clearly and very explicitly by saying this promise is for you and for your children. Um, just an anecdote here. I've, I've talked to a non-denominational Christian uh, a couple of times before about infant baptism. And I brought up this very text. Um, yeah, so, so I brought up this very text and uh, I said, look, uh, well, the scriptures very clearly say this promise is for you and for your children. And then he says, yeah, but the Bible says children, but it never says how old those children should be. To which I said, exactly, that's my point. Uh, it never says what age they're to be. So why are you putting a limit on where God didn't? Are eight-year-old's children? Yeah. Are three-year-old's children? Yeah. Is a one-day-old ch- a child? Yes. They're all children and they all are intended by Jesus to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John 3, 5. I, again, I can't put this up on the screen. For some reason, my my computer's not working well. Uh, John 3, 5. Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then at the final part, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. The, the word here is not skin, like the, just body or meat is born of meat is meat. He's talking about that which is not spiritual, that he's talking about worldly things. Worldly things beget worldly things. Sinful things beget sinful things. People who die beget children who will die. Um, that, that's the point he's saying here. So then uh, he's, he's saying you can't get to heaven naturally as you are looking like a cute and innocent little baby. You don't get into heaven by your native or natural innocence which we already talked about, which we don't have, uh, Psalm 51. You get into heaven by water and the Spirit. Uh, Colossians 2, 11 through 12. It says, In him, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Circumcision had to be done. It was a kind of a, a crude surgery on the body. Um, But this is one that was made without hands. And he says, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So there's a circumcision that's made without hands. And what is that? It is being buried with Christ in baptism. It's not cutting off a part of your flesh. It's cutting off all of your flesh and raising you to new life. In the context here, Colossians 2, if if we had more time, I could go through this, but you could read it on your own. Baptism replaces circumcision. When was circumcision done? It was done to babies when they were eight days old on the eighth day. So if baptism replaces circumcision, uh, well then, what what is it? Does it exclude babies? No. Um, In fact, if it's replacing it, the people of the Old Testament up to the New Testament, all of the Jews, baptizing babies would not have been a question for them. Of course, obviously, the entire Old Testament, the Old Covenant was 
including the babies as well. Circumcision was for them. Well, now in the New Testament, God has given us something else, the the fuller thing. Um, Luke 18, verse 15 through 17 is another text. It says, now they were bringing even infants. The word there in Greek is brephos. They were bringing infants to him that he might touch them, that Jesus might touch them. Uh, that there's this connection between Jesus and the baby in this way. And when the disciples saw it, what did they do? They rebuked them. They rebuked the moms who brought the babies. Why? Because babies are loud and they're uh, stinky and they have snot and the, all these sort of things. And we'll just get the babies away so we can focus on and be with Jesus and just cast them to the side. Till, this is a grown-up thing is what they're thinking and, and saying. So they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him. He calls the babies to him and he's saying, and, and the mothers, he says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Don't stand in the way or don't prevent them from coming. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he bless them. The word infant here, we have two instances of this, that they're bringing them in their arms. Uh, there's a, a parallel text in Mark. They're holding them in their arms. They're not holding a 10-year-old in their arms. It's a baby. It, the, the Greek word brephos here is the same word to describe John the Baptist when he was in the womb. The same word to refer to Jesus when he was placed into a manger, when he was a newborn infant. Um he says the kingdom of God, this is synonymous for the church. The kingdom of God is the church. If someone belongs to the kingdom of God, well, then they belong to the church. And if they belong to the church, then they are a Christian. He says, don't hinder them. Don't prevent them. Don't stand in the way uh, of, of them coming to me. And then he says, whoever does not receive this like a child. So, Jesus isn't saying that children need to become adults, but rather the adults need to become like the children. He's not referring to the children's innocence or purity of this. He's referring to their faith, that we need to be childlike in and infant-like in our faith, uh, that we're, we're, we're taken to Jesus, that we don't reject him or despise him or run away from him. Um, okay. Uh, I want to get to this next part, which is pretty important. I want to spend some time here. And the question is, can babies have faith? This is a a very important question. Uh, Some people ask, like, why do you baptize infants? And they'll say, um, they say, "Look, look, we don't baptize infants in our church. We only have something called believer's baptism, right? And when I've heard people say this, they say, oh, good. Uh, we do that too. We have believer's baptism too. <laughs> uh, that's why we baptize infants. And then they're astounded and they're perplexed by this. And they say, what, what do you mean? That they can't believe. So what's going on here is those who believe in believer's baptism teach that baptism is your obedience, your doing. And in order for that to happen, faith equals rationality and reasoning capability. Uh, Babies, however, are irrational and they can't reason. 
So therefore, they conclude, babies can't have faith. Right? If, if you define faith as rationality and reasoning, well, um, then babies can't have faith, according to this. Um, let me... Okay. Uh, so they say that faith is something up here. Um, in the mind, but faith is not in the mind. Faith is in the heart. Faith is in the soul. Faith is not rationality. Faith is trust. Faith, faith is in the heart. It is given as a gift from God. It's sustained by the Holy Spirit. Uh, faith is trust. If faith is only active, here, here's the problem. If faith is only active when you're rational and when you're, have the capa- uh, when you're capable of reasoning, then the question is, do you have faith when you sleep? Because are you rational when you're sleeping? I, I'm very irrational when I'm sleeping. Like weird things happen. I'm flying and I'm, you know, monsters that don't exist are chasing me or whatever it might be. That's irrational. Uh, things are unreasonable, right? Uh, things don't make sense in the dream. Time, it's a time warp. Things are, aren't normal. Okay, that's your mind when you're sleeping. Do you have faith? Well, according to them, no. Um, how about when you're in a coma? Your, your mind, they say your brain is dead. It's not working. You're in a coma. Uh, what about if you have dementia or Alzheimer's? Can you still have faith? If you lose the ability to reason, then you lose the ability to then believe according to this teaching. But if faith is trust, like I'm saying, then you can trust even while being irrational or not having the ability to reason. You can trust and have faith even while sleeping, even while in a coma. Let, uh, I'll, I'll show you a couple texts on this, um, but I want to just show you the argument. It's very simple here. If I had a whiteboard, I, I would write this up, but just say the first point is this. Is it true that babies can inherit the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, uh, Jesus says so. Uh, the brephos, the little infants nursing at their mother's breasts, they were brought to him and he says, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven and he blessed them. So yes, babies can inherit the kingdom of God. Luke 18, we saw. Second point. Um, is it true that you need to have faith to get into the kingdom of God? And the answer is yes, you need to have faith. In fact, that, that is the, the necessary thing. Only believers inherit the kingdom of God. Mark 16, 16 says, those who believe and are baptized will be saved. John 20, uh, these things are written that you may believe and that by believing you may have eternal life. Uh, you're saved by grace through faith. Faith is crucial. Babies inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible say that only believers, only those who have faith inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, what? What, what do we deduce? Babies can believe. Um, those are, th this is airtight arguments from the scriptures. Th these are scriptural verses. I'm, I'm not stretching this or changing them. This is the logical conclusion of these two premises. Um, Luke 18, babies inherit the kingdom of God. Only, be only believers inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, babies must be 
who are saved must be believers. That is, they could have faith. Now, okay, that's my, that's my logical argument. But are there any texts in the Bible that say clearly and specifically that babies can believe? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Matthew 18, 6. Jesus talks about this beautiful chapter in, in Matthew. Jesus says, whoever causes, he's talking about scandalizing and, and causing people to fall away from the faith. And then he says, uh, whoever causes one of these little ones, the Greek word there's mikron, which is micro. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. <laughs> the little ones who believe, even the smallest ones who believe in me. Okay, you don't buy that, fine. Psalm 22 verse 9 says, says this, You, God, are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. <laughs> from birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Here, very clearly, it's talking about a, a, a baby uh, believing, trusting, even at his mother's breast. From birth, he was cast upon God. He was relying upon God. From mother's womb, he has been his God. Okay, now some will try to discredit this and say, well, this is a messianic psalm. This is Jesus' psalm. So this is talking about Jesus, and it's not talking about all people. First of all, you can't make that argument because you're saying that there's a quality about Jesus uh, in his humanity that is not applicable to us. And if that's the case, well, then he's not fully human. Um, but fine. If you make that argument and say, well, this is talking really about Jesus. And Jesus was the one who trusted at his mother's breast and who, uh, who, who has been cast upon God from birth. Okay, fine. Um, Psalm 71 verse 5 says, for you, this is not a messianic psalm in this, in this way. Um, for you are my hope. O Lord God, my confidence from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from what? From before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb, and my praise is continually of you. So here again, uh, this is the psalmist talking about trusting and leaning on, relying upon, confiding in God. Uh, <clears throat> we see this not only in text, in doctrine, in teaching, but also an example. Luke one forty one. Uh, Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary. And what does the text say? It says the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, what, what does that mean? <laughs> Why is this significant? Is this just the, the baby's kicking? No, uh, this is a change. This is something unique. And it's, she's in the presence of God. She knows this, that Mary is carrying Jesus in, the, uh, uh, in her womb. And Elizabeth has John the Baptist in her womb. And when they're close together in this proximity, the, John the Baptist leaves for joy in the womb. And she even points this out. And she's filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the first person to, to recognize Jesus is John the Baptist, who's an unborn baby in the womb still. Um, okay, just a, a few of those arguments on, on whether babies can believe. And yes, yes, of course, it's all throughout the scriptures. Um, and you can deduce this from 
logical arguments of stringing scriptures together. Also, you have the clear texts of scripture themselves. Um, now, I, I want to address this. Can anybody then be saved apart from baptism or without baptism? Uh, from what we've heard, baptism sounds necessary, right? It, it sounds very, very important according to the Bible. Um, I, I don't think I could ever make it more important than the way the Bible talks about it. Uh, so it's a very, very crucial thing, and it, it insists upon it. Be baptized. It's, there, there's exhortations on this. It just, it's a given a lot of times. You, you were baptized, okay? And it, and it goes on from there. Um, so does baptism sound necessary? Absolutely. The, the question then is this, are there exceptions to this? Well, um, we need to be very, very careful here. We need to say as much as the Bible says without saying more than what the Bible says. We don't want to say less than what the Bible says, and we don't want to say more than what the Bible says. We want to say what the Bible says, and we have to use our, our reason and our, our, our uh, God-given ability to read and understand the scriptures in this way. So there's, there's four things I can point out here. Um, usually, let me back up. Usually when people ask this question, they're talking about something specific, specifically uh, like a child who dies in the womb. So, um, so a, a mother who's carrying the baby and uh, at six months, the baby dies in the womb and is stillborn. And they had every intention of baptizing this baby. They love this baby. They said, as soon as this baby is, but we've bought the, the, confer, or the, the baptismal gown, we bought all these things we've arranged for it and, and we wanted to baptize this baby and this, my baby has died. What happened to my baby? I wanted my baby to be with Jesus. Now what? And I know what baptism says about uh, baptism, or sorry, what the Bible says about baptism. And I know what the Bible says about my baby and, and my baby wasn't able to be baptized. So now what? Right? And they're, they're, they're uh, questioning this. Well, here are the four things I, I bring up. I ask, did Jesus die for the baby's sins? Let's just call him a he. Did, your baby, did, did, did God die for your baby's sins? Did he die for his sins? Yes. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Was your baby in this world? Yeah. yeah. Was he completely dependent upon you and your womb and the umbilical cord? and all? Yes, he was. But was he in this world? Absolutely. Did Jesus die for his sins? Absolutely. Yes. So that's the first thing. Second, does God want to save him? Does he want to save your baby? Ezekiel 18.23, Ezekiel 33.11, the scriptures say, declares the Lord, um, I do not desire the death of the wicked. I don't delight in the death of the wicked. Um, I, I don't want that. So the question, do the, do the parents want the baby to be saved? Yeah. But does God want the baby to be saved? Well, did, did God knit that baby in the mother's womb? Yeah. Did God number the hairs on that baby's head? Yeah. Does God know all of his days before he lived one of them? Yeah. Does God love that baby? Yes, more than anyone does. More than the mother and father could possibly love that baby. God loves the baby even more 
This is, this is so common. It's so beautiful. Um, so yeah, did Jesus die for his sins? Yes. Does God want to save him? Absolutely. Three, can the Holy Spirit give the baby faith? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we just talked about this. Matthew 18, 6. Uh, one of these little ones who believe in me. Psalm 71, you made me trust you. Uh, even in my mother's womb, at my mother's breast, before I was born, I relied upon you. I confided in you. Can, can the Holy Spirit give faith to babies? Yes. And the fourth point, can God give faith apart from baptism? Can, can, can he uh, save people apart without baptism? Yes, he can. What examples do we have? We have the entire Old Testament. Um, we have uh, the thief on the cross. Uh, we, we have people who, who have died without baptism who are saved. Mark 16, 16 says, those who believe and are baptized will be saved, but those who do not believe will be condemned. Well, what is the only thing that condemns? The thing that condemns is not being not baptized. The thing that condemns is not believing. Well, and we've already established this, that God can give faith to even infants. Uh, that he desires to save this baby, that he died for this baby's sins. Can God give faith apart from baptism? Yes. Um, the, the, the point here is that you and I, as humans, are bound to baptism, but God isn't. Um, he works through means for our sake so that we know where to find him. But is God bound to his means? No. God can work anywhere and any way he wants to and as he pleases. Just because God doesn't need his means of grace, it doesn't mean that we should dispense of them and say, well, if God can work any way, then I don't need this. No, that, it's not up to you and me to decide that. It's up to God to make that decision whether he wants to use them or not. So he, here's what we could say. For, for babies who die without baptism uh, or people who die without baptism, who are incapable of being baptized. I'm not even talking about those who reject baptism. That's a different story. I'm talking about those who desire it, but who were not able to be. What I could say is this, is that Jesus died for them. He wants to save them. He can give babies faith. And he can even give faith apart from baptism. Uh, even apart from the normal means that he uses. Um, so so this, is, this is all to say that baptism is necessary. But it is not absolutely necessary for salvation. It is not that one can never be saved unless one is baptized. So, so that's the point. Um, I gave you a number of texts. I have a, a, a couple of other things to go through. If you have questions on any of this, let me know. And I'm happy to, to, to show you. The, the bottom line here is that the way to defend infant baptism and to show that infants ought to be baptized is by simply speaking of the benefits of baptism. That if baptism is our work, well, then, yeah, you got to be a certain age. You got to be mature. But if baptism is God's work, well, then, then you can be any age. Uh, what do you have to do to be forgiven? Nothing. God forgives. Can't, uh, sorry, this is one final argument. A lot of people will say, well, babies don't understand what they're doing. Babies don't understand anything. So therefore, they, they can't receive the benefit of baptism. That is a bad argument. Do babies, do infants understand anything? No. No. Do they understand how milk works? And how it's, how it's created in the body and then it feeds and that they have a, an esophagus and a stomach and then it digests this and it has all the mi minerals and all. 
They don't get that. All they know is that they're hungry. And yet, even though a baby doesn't understand that, does it receive the benefit of milk? <laughs> yes. Does a baby understand how lungs work? No. Or air? That he needs oxygen? No. But can the baby receive the benefit of oxygen? Yes. Now, if he can receive the benefit of these things <laughs> without understanding them, um, can the baby receive the forgiveness of sins, even though he can't even spell forgiveness? Yeah. It's, it, he, he can still receive the benefit without even understanding what it is. It is a trust uh, that the Lord gives this very thing. Okay. Um, if you have questions, email me. I, again, like I said, next year, I'm going to have two-hour classes so that we can go through all the questions and, and uh, responses. But um, anything else, just let me know. Let's close with the, uh, with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.